Hello, I'm Dr. Gemma Newman, also known as the Plant Power Doctor, your host for The Wellness Edit, a brand new podcast brought to you by Holland and Barrett. Each episode, I'll be joined by leading experts in different aspects of wellness. 75% of the UK population aren't reaching their biological sleep needs. Cortisol is one of the key stress hormones which we know can turn down your immune response. Find out more at hollandandbarrett.com forward slash podcast or search The Wellness Edit on your favourite podcast streaming service today. Hello and welcome to the Healthy for Men podcast. My name's Gershon Portnoy and I'm presenting this podcast and editing Healthy for Men magazine while my colleague Tom Rowley is away. In this episode, we're going to hear from Vendée Globe round the world sailor Alex Thompson, who talks about the unbelievable physical and mental challenges of spending 74 days at sea on his own while traveling 26,000 miles across the globe on a 60-foot boat. Alex, welcome to the Healthy for Men podcast. Thank you very much. Um, can I just start by uh, asking you, Alex, what, how's your 2020 been? Because obviously this has been a year that has not been easy for a lot of people. But if you're training for a round the world yacht races, as you clearly are, uh, how has that affected you? Well, the basic issue for us has been time, really. We try to foresee every eventuality. <laughs> we didn't foresee uh, COVID-19 and the effect it would have. And the result is you do, you know, you lose hours you lose time and you lose miles on the water, both of which are not ideal in a preparation for a, for a single-handed round-the-world race. Right. So in, in other words, you might not be as prepared as you'd like to be at this stage. Yeah, we'd always like to be more prepared. We'd always, I think from the start of every round-the-world race, you'd always like to have a few uh, a few more months. The difference, I guess, the, the saving grace in some ways is that we've all been in the same situation, although most of, almost all of the, uh, the contenders to win the next one day are, are in France, apart from us. You know, France had a very similar lockdown to us and, and, and similar restrictions. So uh, forgive the pun, I, I think we're all in the same boat. <laughs> I bet you've used that one before. Yeah, um, well, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so for the uh, uninitiated, uh, myself included, um, the Vendée Globe is obviously quite a well-known race, um, but maybe, you know, we don't know as much about it as just the sound of it, you know, sailing around the world, spending over 70 days on your own at sea. It's known as the Everest of the seas. Do you think that's a kind of fair description for the challenge involved? Yeah, absolutely. Although a lot less people have ever done it that have climbed Everest. And, um, you know, I think for a solo, single-handed, non-stop round-the-world race, you know, you, uh, you're not allowed any Sherpas to help you. Right. So in, in some ways it's different. I mean, I, I describe it as the, as the world's most difficult sporting challenge um, and a true test of a person's physical and mental strength. And you know, for, your, for your listeners, if I can just explain as a, as a, as a race in simple terms, it's a, it's a non-stop solo around the world race. So that's one person on the boat. Uh, it starts and finishes in France in a place called Le Sable de Lonne, where, where uh, in pre-COVID days, two and a half million people would come through the race village beforehand. It's extremely popular. I guess it's a bit like uh, the Tour de France in, in the olden days a little bit. Uh, the course is easy and the rules are simple because you come out of La Sable, you turn left, you race down the bottom, go left at Africa, go round Antarctica, left at America, 
and back to France again. So that's about 26,000 miles it takes. Uh, last time took 74 days. I finished in second place. And statistically, only 50% of the people who start the race will finish. And generally, that's because of technical issues. And to be clear, in, in France, they say it's sans assistance, which means no assistance. So if I step foot on dry land during the race, I'm disqualified. If I have any performance help in any way, I'm disqualified. So it's, uh, it's a pretty pure, brutal, relentless race. Wow. Wow. Well, I'd imagine that you're saying, you know, how tough it is, is probably exactly why so few people have, um, have actually completed it. Is, is it. is it right? Is it less, fewer than 100 have actually completed it successfully? Is that right? It's a, it's a figure around that number, yeah. So, you know, there's, I think more people have been in outer space, probably 10 times more people have been in outer space than have ever done that. And you're one of those people. Yeah, I've done it. Well, I've, I've uh, attempted it uh, four times. And uh, I've only finished twice, and I finished in third place in 2012 and second place in 2016. So I'm an average statistic, I guess. So third, then second. So I assume that this time you're, I mean, not that you weren't set on winning last time. Obviously, you know, you set out to win. But this time, is it, is it kind of all about the win? Uh, yeah, the objective is to finish. You know, uh, as Sir Robert Knox Johnson, one of my, uh, my main mentors, He'd always say to me, Thompson, don't forget to finish first. First, you have to finish. <laughs> and, uh, and, he, and he's right. He's absolutely right. You can aim at winning, but that, that doesn't help you if you don't finish. So, you know, firstly, we have to aim at finishing, making the boat reliable, fast enough to be able to compete, but re reliable. And you've got to set off with that in mind. And obviously, the objective is to win. But it's certainly not a foregone conclusion. You know, there's a bit of luck in there. There's a, there's a lot of you know, uh, making the right choices in the build-up and in lots of areas. I, I firmly believe the race is, to some degree, finished before you start. Um, and that's all in the preparation. Okay. So about that preparation then, I mean, it's obviously a huge physical, mental challenge, like you say. Can you actually do mental preparation for being in this solitary environment for 74 days? How, how does one go about doing that? Uh, well, I think firstly, you have to believe in it. And I really believe in it. You know, I think uh, it's one of the things that you can do beforehand that prepares you. And I have a sports psychologist, a chap called Ken Way, who he was a sports psychologist for Leicester City when they won the Premier League. He's a, he's a good guy. I've worked with him for you know, nearly 20 years now. And so how it works is I, I can't talk to him on the race because that would be an obvious performance increase. So I have to give him my challenges and then he works out a method to deal with those challenges. And then lots of those, we call them tools. So I've got a little tool bag of mental tools. And, uh, you know, I pull out whichever tool I want, but they have to be paired before the race and useful before the race because that's, that's the only way you're allowed to, to get that. Right. What would be an example of the sort of challenges that you, that you face? I mean, I would imagine sleep is obviously a major issue and that's going to affect you mentally as well. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's uh, that's uh, actually the one of the... I'm seeing Ken in a, in a few hours, actually, and uh, that's right. one of the things we're working on right now. I think there's there's so much we can do. I mean, you know, there's a the physical part of this and, and then there's a the mental part. So we we, uh, we work with Nokia Bell Labs. They're one of our partners and they've been amazing to help us 
go and win the race. And one of the things is how I manage myself. Mm. You know, how how do I know how much sleep I'm getting? How many calories am I burning? You know, that kind of thing. So they've we've worked with them over the last couple of years, developed some hardware and software that that can tell me when I'm sleeping and when I'm not sleeping. And then that in turn then helps me manage that. So that's a big part. But let's say I remember a race I did a couple of years ago where we were in the recording process. So I'm telling my device that I'm you know exhausted, mentally exhausted, physically exhausted. I'm at my lowest ebb, if you like. And then a position report came through and I'd made 20 miles in the last four hours. Right. And immediately I went back to my device and I said, Oh, I, I don't feel so tired anymore. And, you know, I'm actually feeling instead of being five tired, I'm only a one. And mm. so, and suddenly I thought, wow, you know, hang on a second. You know, I'm physically in the same place I was, but something happened now that's made me mentally feel different and that's affected my physical being. So I, I firmly believe that the mental side of it has a huge effect on how we are physically. That's really interesting. In, in terms of other tools, let's say <clears throat> you know, a basic one, you know, you're in the when you get to the Southern Ocean, although it's a place where all sailors want to go, where the winds are big and the waves are big and it's exciting and exhilarating, you're also thousands of miles from other human beings. You know, you you are out of out of reach of any rescue services. So you you're very aware of your own mortality and you know, you might be up on deck and going fast and it all feels quite exciting and then you it gets dark and you go down below and you know, you're in a carbon base bin, essentially, barreling down waves. And your brain is, is, is saying, asking yourself, you know, what's going to happen next? Are you going to hit something? Is, uh, you know, you're going to get hit by a huge rogue wave or are you going to suddenly get a storm force gust? Or, you know, mentally that's very difficult because your natural defense system is, is telling you there could be a problem and then your heart rate is raised and it's hard to be able to calm down and get some sleep. To um, combat that, uh, we call it the helicopter view. That My tool is that I can visualize myself now, I'm not inside the boat and I'm not I'm sitting on the deck. I'm not even at the mast level. I'm up at the clouds and I can look down and yeah, I can see the boat's going fast, and, but I can see it's not ridiculous. I can see there's no rogue waves. I can see there's nothing ahead of me. And so that's just a way for me to be able to, to, be able to calm down a little bit, to be able to reduce the adrenaline that's flowing through my body, reduce the heart rate and be in a position to be able to get some sleep. That's really, really interesting. I, I suppose that there must be quite a lot of questions you get asked that are quite common questions when people find out what you do. Do people ask you often about eating as well? Because that, that must be a difficult one in terms of getting enough nutrition inside you while you're doing this. Yeah, food gets talked about a lot. You know, we eat, I eat a lot of freeze-dried food, but, you know, today there's quite a lot of variety around. When I started 20 years ago, it was pretty basic stuff. Lots of people still call it astronaut food. You know, it's not terribly nice food. I'd rather eat what my wife cooks at home, but there's enough. It's not hard to get the nutrition you need, I don't think. It's not It's not terribly different. I mean, they're, they're important parts. You need the fuel and you need to be hydrated and they are key, but I, I'm, it's not something I find terribly difficult anymore. There's no shortage of water, I presume. Well, no, I leave with 10 litres of water on the boat, fresh water, right. and I make my own. So that's another thing you have to manage. And amazingly, actually, you know, you think about how much water we use on a daily basis as human beings, and I survive. I'm probably averaging three and a half to four litres of water per day sailing around the world. And you think, uh, you think, wow, you know, perhaps we could all use a little bit less water. It's interesting that, isn't it? Because I was thinking, you know, when you are doing something like that, in addition to all the challenges, clearly, it must be give you an incredible perspective on the world to make a journey like that and see things that most people don't see. And like you were just saying, you realise what you can exist on. Does it change your perspective on the world? 
Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the other one that springs to mind immediately is just the rubbish, you know, the amount of rubbish. I, I collect all the rubbish on the boat and at the end of the race, so you can see it. So, you know, and you think, oh, one person, three months, do we really need to be producing this kind of amount of rubbish? But yeah, I, I think generally, I think that's one of the things that I inherently love about the sport, that when you get out there and you're the whim of nature. Mm. And I think uh, if you, it doesn't matter how big your boat is, it could be, you know, my boat's 60 feet long or 20 meters. It could be a dinghy or it could be a cruise ship even. When you're on one of these things and you're out of sight of land, I think it gives you a great perspective on on where we are as humans in this world. And I think that perspective I find humbling. Mm. I struggle to see any of the skippers who, who that if you have an ego, nature has a way of pushing it down. So I kind of, I think that that feeling that, you know, we get from doing this kind of thing, if you could give that feeling to every person in the world, I think maybe, maybe the world would be a better place. Yeah. I see what you mean. It's the answer, isn't it? We, we all need to go and do this. <laughs> I'm not, my wife would definitely say no. <laughs> She's probably not the only one. Uh, <laughs> without sort of taking the conversation down to sort of like a, a nasty place, what, I've got to ask you, what about going to the loo? Well, yeah, going to the loo is, uh, well, we don't have a toilet. Too heavy. Right. Everything's about weight. So, And I used to have a, just a normal bucket. So you put a biodegradable bag in the bucket, you go in the, the bucket and then it would go in the water. But fundamental problem with the bucket is if you lean over too far, they fall over. <laughs> right. So uh, I think I, I jokingly explained this problem to my team and they, and they uh, a couple of weeks later, they produced a custom made carbon fiber bucket, which was modeled on a dog bowl. I, it was wide at the bottom and thinner at the top <laughs> and it could withstand 80 degrees of heel before it fell over. So it's it's a small detail, yeah. but it kind of yeah. I guess it shows you how far we're prepared to go. I mean, it's not just about making the boat go fast; it's about making the human better, making the human interact better with the machine. Almost, you want to be in perfect synergy with the machine, and and details like you know your comfort and basic functions like going to the toilet are obviously important in that. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I suppose just going back to other other basic functions, we talked about sleep before. Just for so that people listening can understand how little, if you like, are you actually sleeping when you're doing this? Because obviously you're on the boat for 70 plus days. So so what's the average amount of sleep you're able to get? Well, we didn't measure it in the last race, but uh, in the races uh, that we've done subsequently, which is not a long, in an 11-day race, I think I was sleeping on average two and a half hours a day. And that would be, I think the average sleep was around 30 minutes. So it's it's kind of like little little bursts of sleep. Yeah, you end up yeah. trying to get little bursts of sleep and you're trying to get enough, but you generally don't. I mean, I think it takes a while to, you know, you're looking at a 10 days to two weeks to, to build into a rhythm to get your body to, you know, adjust from seven or eight hours where it might take an hour and a half or so to reach the deep sleep, the REM sleep, that part of which you require. But I think your, your body learns and adapts over a period and you, it's amazing. It's amazing what the human body is able to, to you know to to be able to do and i think the restrictions in some ways are our own minds mm. so uh, i think in the last one day i don't think i slept for more than an hour in the whole race but you know after a few weeks i was going to sleep for an hour wake up fresh as a daisy and off you go again i mean it's a management it's a human management exercise the whole thing and, it, and i think if you're open to the possibilities and you're prepared to try different ways of doing it and try and remove some of the restrictions that are in all of our minds, then you find out that the human performance is unbelievable, astonishing. 
Mm. It's weird, isn't it? I suppose thinking about this year, humans, we've all had to sort of make adjustments, haven't we? And some of us have had to kind of isolate for long periods of time, not be in touch in physical proximity to other humans. And here you are off, you know, going off to do your own kind of really long period of isolation, albeit at sea. I wondered if you'd kind of thought about that connection. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a connection. I think actually it's great for the sport. Our sport is almost entirely consumed on the internet, so that's uh, that's great for the environment we're here today. Uh, for lockdown, for me, you know, I think there's a big difference. You know, the lockdown that we had was forced upon us, and the lockdown I'm going to go and do is is, is chosen. And statistically, I kind of enjoy it. Mm. So it is a different thing, but there are there are definitely uh, crossovers, and I think you know my experience of of what I do has certainly helped in this period. If if, if anything, just trying to look on the positive side of things and for us and my family in lockdown we we were based in jersey at the time which is where part of my family are from and with the opportunity to spend that kind of time with my family and my kids and my wife you know i'll probably never get that time again Mm. so in some ways it was a it was a positive from our side but i think one of the things we have to do and i do is is you have to look at things with a you know the glass has to be half uh, full not half empty yeah, you know, you have to look on the positive side of things, and and uh, that's something I do. In fact, Ken, my sports psychologist, I remember the, talking to him. I think a number of years ago, where he, I think he said to me, hey, "You know, Alex," he said, "Do you um would you would you agree, Alex, that a happy person is going to perform better than a sad person, an unhappy person?" I said, "Yeah, Ken, of course, you know, of course." I said, "But Ken, if I'm in the middle Atlantic and something terrible's happened, you know, how do you expect me to be happy?" And he said, well, it's quite simple, Alex. The first thing you need to do is just smile. He said, you know, the physical the physical doing, the physical smiling that we do, it's proven there are chemical reactions all to do with endorphins and dopamine in the brain that when we smile, you will feel better. So, yeah, I spend my, I spend my life walking around the world and, you know, believe me, <laughs> I can be miserable as sin, have a big smile on my face. And, yeah, I, I have to say I believe in it, genuinely believe in it. And, and actually I came back from that from uh, the last one day and I smiled and I smiled and I smiled. And you end up seeing, you know, you smile and then you see somebody else smile and you think, well, I just made them feel better. So you're going to wear a 74-day smile then well, as, as you're doing this challenge, apart from when you're sleeping? I try, I try. That sounds like a challenge in itself. I was doing my homework and I understand that there's some amazing kind of technology now with the boats, your boat in particular, with the foil. Can you explain a bit about the foil? Because the boats are now going up to 60 kilometres per hour. Is that that right? They're kind of like absolutely bombing along the water sometimes. Yeah, they can do. I think it maybe even peaks above that, 70 maybe, but um, the averages are still very high. So, yeah, I mean, the boats now have a, um, we'd call them hydrofoils, I guess. We shorten them in our world to foils. Right. Uh, And that's essentially a wing, a wing that sticks out the side of the boat. It's shaped like the wing on an aeroplane. There's some adjustability to it. And the effect is that as the water passes over the hydrofoil, it produces lift. And when it produces lift, it starts to lift the boat out of the water. And one of our biggest challenges is it's a big, fat, wide boat. And when the boat's in the water, it causes friction. Mm. And if you take the friction away by lifting the boat up, it goes significantly faster, 40, 50, even 60% faster. But we're only allowed one or two wings, and, and they're at the, in the middle of the boat. Uh, we're not allowed to have wings at the back of the boat, which would then allow us to fully fly. So it'd be a bit like an aircraft taking off without the wings at the back. It'd be extremely unstable. Mm. It'd probably crash a few times. 
And that's what it's like for us. We're not going very high. You know, we're only maximum kind of coming a meter out of the water, maybe a bit more at the front of the boat. I guess it's bird flying on one wing. Mm. Sometimes we go very fast, but it can be quite unstable. Yeah. So is the boat almost on its side at times then because, because of this foil? Uh, I mean, sometimes in that scenario, we call that, it's called a technical term, it's called a brooch where, um, where the boat leans over too much and, and then goes into the wind and you can lean over maybe 70, 80 degrees, pretty unpleasant. Right. Uh, but generally we're trying to keep the boat upright and, and sail around maybe only leaning over 10 to 15 degrees really. So the interesting thing with it is, is if you're going along at 10 knots and knots is how we measure speed and not one knot is 1.1 mile an hour. So 10 knots is 11 miles an hour. Some of us can run faster than that. <laughs> uh, then, and if you were to say that the water passing over the hydrofoil at that point is causing a lift of X, if you were to double your speed to 20 knots, the, the, the lift or the force created from the water going over the foil is not X times 2, it's X squared. So it's a, there's an immense amount of power from these wings and from these hydrofoils, and, it, and it's a real management challenge to look after them in the right way. Ah, wow. So that's, that's obviously a big change then. Presumably this technological advancement has, has come around more recently. Yeah, well, there, there was uh, eight or nine boats in the last one day, so a third of the fleet in the last one day had, had wings. They weren't allowed to be adjustable in those days. And, and now this time, you know, we've gone much further, much longer adjustability. We understand it a lot more. And so, yeah, in, inherently you progress. And, and this stage where we're at in sailing terms, you know, we're... We're on the crossover from, you know, being a kind of sailing boat bobbing around in the water to being a, you know, an aircraft. Yeah. The next stage eventually in the next, you know, five to 10 years will be that we'll be fully flying. And, and then once you're fully flying, the, the friction is, is gone. And, and when the friction's gone, the loads have, have changed. The boats go faster for an awful lot less energy. Kind of see a place maybe in the future where transportation across the seas may well change because of this. Yeah, I was, when you were saying that, I was just thinking, hang on a minute, you know, this is this is not just about bombing it around the world in in, in seventy four days. That that could be that could be really useful, right? Well, you know, why not? I certainly believe so. It's a real challenge, but you know, we are seeing things changing. We are seeing shipping using the wind to help and using different softwares to to try and um, improve the sustainability. And I think maybe this this could be a big step at some point in the future. So the other thing I was interested in about obviously all this preparation you, you do this is obviously a really big physical challenge as well as we talked about the mental stuff so i wondered physically what prep you're doing you must have to be extremely physically fit to do this i would imagine and yeah you know what, what do you do is, is there a lot of sort of time spent in the gym is it, is it that kind of thing or is it other sort of fitness work you might do yeah i mean there's a fair amount of that kind of gym work that goes on i, I think for me i'm now 46 and you know, well, I, I don't feel like I need to be in it much fitter or stronger than I already am. So a lot of it now is about maintaining it and reducing injury and increasing flexibility. So, you know, in, in my younger days, it was sometimes we'd focus a lot on strength and cardio side. And, you know, we, we do a mix of all of it now, but there's a big priority for me not to get injured. And, and to be honest, the main injuries I've ever had have come from the gym. Really? Yeah. So it's a reasonable focus, but I'd say today the mental side of it is a bigger bigger advantage or describe it maybe as a lower hanging fruit almost yeah yeah i see what you mean yeah so you're kind of like a fan of the gym or are you somebody you take it or leave it or did you actually enjoy going to work out that kind of thing oh, i hate it yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean i hate the going in a gym and obviously i haven't been in the gym since uh march yeah there's plenty of other you know when i was in jersey i'd 
I was uh, training on the beach with uh, with uh, using a bar, you're using a piece of granite rock and, you know, you're running through the soft sand and, you know, it's kind of like you know, one of those Rambo movies, you know, from the old days. Um, you're creating your own training montage. Yeah, I much more enjoy that kind of thing. I'm a keen kite surfer myself um, and, and I hydrofoil with that as well. So that's a, something where you, you do something that's relevant to your sport, but it's also improving your, your fitness and particularly your core. I think kite surfing is a, a fantastic core tool. So, uh, yeah, the, I mean, the main, for me, you know, getting injured, particularly when you get to the point where you've not got the hours you want to spend on the water, you really can't afford to, to spend any time out of action. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about kite surfing because I was wondering, did you always sort of spend a lot of time on water? Growing up, was that kind of like a thing? I, I could water ski when I was five. Right. Keen windsurfer. I'm all things water, basically, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, another thing that I was reading about was um, you're quite well known in France. I'm not saying you're not well known here because obviously people know about you and you're doing the, the Vendée Globe. It's a big thing. But would it be fair to say that you're something of a celebrity in France? Oh, I don't know. don't know about that. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's a, in, in France, in France, it's huge. You know, in France, they they start with a philosophy that, you know, if you put a kid in a boat, in a, in a single-handed sailing boat, it's going to teach them independence. Right. If you stick two kids in a boat together, it's going to teach them communication. It's going to teach them, it's going to teach them teamwork. You know, they kind of believe that, that sailing, uh, there's some life skills mm. that you can learn from the sport. And then they really, they really love the offshore solo world. And they really get it. You know, if you look at the stats for the Vendée, something like 85% of French people know the Vendée Globe. Right, and they just uh, they just love it, and it's a French sport. It's only ever been won by a French person, and they I often have people telling me French people that tell me that they want me to win the Vendée, and and I always think I always think yeah you know, you know that's a very nice thing for you to say and and uh, but really do you really want a British person to win the Vendée Globe? So, and uh, you know, I think a lot of them, they genuinely do. Whether they'll like it when it happens, I, I don't know. So for, I feel like I've got lots of responsibilities, but one of my responsibilities is to the sport. And so we try as a team to, to, to really try and communicate what it's like to be out there, you know, the rough with the smooth and, you know, show all you know, the warts and all. And, uh, and I think they, re- they really have appreciated, you know, that. And, uh, and, and, and I think that's a, a big part of our popularity. I mean, I'm, perhaps I'm one of the most popular British people in France, which maybe doesn't say very much, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that, it's, it's nice. I do like to go there and I love the environment. I love how much their passion. Yeah, but I want to beat them. Quite right too. Um yeah, I see what you mean there about the the rough and the smooth and the sort of the, their philosophy about you know you learning life skills on the water, because I, I guess that must be something that, that you've taken a, a lot from as well in terms of all, all your experiences. There must be so many kind of like life lessons that you would have gained from from doing all these challenges. Oh, definitely. I mean, let's just talk about resilience. I mean, mm. the stuff you have to deal with. Often people say, "Well, how do you do that on your own?" You know, and I and you know the basic thing is, uh, well, there ain't no one else to do it. So you kind of have to, and and it does. It teaches you, you know, you have to be resilient. It teaches you that that things are going to come around the corner that that you didn't expect. That's going to be a challenge, and that's one of the fascinating things with it. And there's always things to be able to learn, and you're never going to get it all right. So, 
I would say overall, a lot of the things I've learned and how I've, as a person, I've become, have come from these challenges that I've faced. Mm. Is, is there like a part of it when you're doing it that you kind of think, oh God, I absolutely love this. Because I can imagine there's obviously lots of hardship, but you know, is there part of that course, I don't know, like one particular stretch that you just think, I'm looking forward to this bit or something like that? Yeah, I mean, for me, that my whole persona on the race and how my whole emotional state is, con- is controlled by my performance. So if I'm doing really well, I'm leading the, leading the race, you're going to see a very happy Alex. Uh, and if, you, if I'm not performing well, then, then the result is I work harder. And, and again, there's challenges around that. You know, that for me, if I'm working harder, that means I'm probably foregoing sleep. I'm probably not managing myself as well. Maybe I'm not eating. Maybe I'm not hydrating. I'm not being as disciplined as I should be. That's a problem. But actually, the bigger problem for me is when I'm doing well and performing above or to expectation, I can be a little bit high and that can lead to complacency. So again, that's actually one of my tools. Is It's a bit of an extreme example, but to get rid of complacency like this, what we did was we had to recreate that aura of invincibility. You know, I don't know, it's you know the best day ever you or maybe your kids were nice to you or you know just one of those days where you think yeah you know i'm kind of god's gift this is brilliant so we had to recreate that feeling and then we related it to um, a near car crash so if you're driving down the road imagine you know somebody pulls out in front of you too close and subconsciously your foot goes on the brakes and at the same time you feel the butterflies in your stomach and maybe the hairs on your arms stand up so by relating uh, that aura of invincibility to that feeling of a near car crash which gives you lots of adrenaline and it allowed me to you know, reduce some of those complacent moments i guess so you kind of like you're stopping yourself from getting carried away essentially yeah 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 I was just thinking what you said before about how you train your body to to get used to the no sleep and another way of being, you know, this management system that you put in place. What happens at the end? Because you then you get back after 74 days and your body's kind of like right into it. You're right used to it. How do you readjust? I mean, that must be really hard as well, weirdly. Yeah, quite a few beers on the first night normally help. (laughs) (laughs) They always say the best thing about offshore racing is the party at the end. Um, uh, it is hard actually to readjust you know you go from the simple food and then you're back into the steaks and the burgers and the rich food and perhaps a glass of wine or two and your body's not uh, your body's like whoa whoa, what are you doing here and then sleep wise yeah take you can take weeks to get back to some kind of normal sleeping pattern which can be a bit frustrating i can tell you yeah i can imagine so it's, it's not like reaching land again being back it's not it's almost like that's not even the end of the challenge yeah oh, it is yeah i mean i can tell you that when, when you can see the finish line mm. and you know you're gonna you're gonna cross it and you know that might only be a couple of miles out you know i guess it feels like the world is lifted from your shoulders you know the weight is gone and can I guess, start to, to really think that you can achieve it. Yeah. I'd imagine there's lots of people listening that have, that have run marathons or maybe ultra runs and can go on for hours and hours and hours. And obviously you see the finish line and it feels amazing, but I can't quite imagine 74 days of that kind of effort and that kind of focus, like you say, and then to sort of see the land and see the distance. I mean, can you kind of do justice to that feeling? Uh, it's pretty hard. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, but it's not just for me, it's the whole team, I think. You know, the, mm. I mean, actually one of the most prevalent feelings I have at that point is a, the lack of worthiness, I think, actually, in some ways. You know, you're, uh, 
you spend that, that amount of time at sea, your body normalizes, your brain normalizes it. Mm. And then you come back and there's 50,000 people, you know, there to cheer you in. And you just think, wow, I don't deserve this. But that's the humbling thing, you know? Yeah. No, it sounds, sounds awesome. I mean, it sounds amazing at that point. But yeah, I guess it must also be a bit weird after not seeing anyone. Can you actually have contact though? I know you were saying, obviously, you couldn't speak to your sports psychologist, but can you have contact with your family? Yeah, I've got um, contact with, I can talk to whoever I want really, as long as they're not improving my performance. They are, I can chat to my wife, I can chat to my kids. You know, sometimes I phone my mates up, hello mate, how you doing? They go, I go, yeah, where are you? Go, I'm in Sainsbury's. Oh yeah. Yeah, he said, I'm looking at a nice big joint of beef. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I do I do get some contact. And, uh, you know, I've got some, I take a Kindle. I've got some an iPad with some games on it, uh, you know, a few TV, uh, movies, shows, et cetera. That, and, uh, and my sports psychologist encourages me to take a bit of time out, watch 10 minutes or read 10 minutes of a book or, you know, try and distract yourself from that focus. And mm. and then, then that allows me to refocus a, a bit tighter afterwards. So there is some contact and I like that. And yeah, I mean, the technology is improving more and more and we're more and more able to be able to bring the audience inside the boat and, and be able to feel what we feel. So uh, I, I, I enjoy that part of it. You know, it's nice to be able to show people what it's really like and for people to, they dream, they, you know, they're inspired by what we do. And, and, and that's a very, that's a very, it's a very nice uh, result for, for us. You know, when you get a note from, you, know, you get the, the comments from people on their Facebook or Instagram or a hub or whatever, where they, they're, they're giving you examples of how what we're doing are affecting their lives. It's a nice virtuous circle. I, I enjoy that part of it. Yeah. That must be pretty cool. I'm fascinated now that you said about, you know, having stuff loaded up on the uh, iPad. I'm fascinated to find out what you might watch. What could kind of like help you escape from being out in the middle of the, uh, in the, middle of the ocean? Have you, have you got stuff loaded up already? So I remember watching a war movie in the middle of the doldrums once that was uh, full of, it was quite ironic, the quietest place in the world and there's all this noise. I mean, generally you're just watching 10 minutes, 10 minutes or so of something uh, the book is a little bit easier because you can you know you can pick it up and put it down and i'm a i'm a fan of bernard cornwall some historical fiction which uh which i which I, again is quite ironic with uh you know being on a on essentially on an f1 you know machine on the middle of the ocean i've uh i remember do, i watched the perfect storm before i set off across the atlantic once and then i ended up on the grand banks in fog you know in a gale god i wish i hadn't watched that movie <laughs> Anyway, it's a bit of a distraction. On the last one day, I got pretty good at Tiger Woods golf. You know, but that's oh, brilliant. Unfortunately, that's only in the uh, on the game side, not in the real life. <laughs> wow, it sounds uh, it sounds absolutely fascinating. And obviously, best of luck for the race this year. I hope it goes really well, and we'll certainly all be rooting for you. Thank you very much. Nice one. Thanks for joining us. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Healthy for Men podcast. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Until then, our new magazine is on sale in Holland and Barrett stores from the weekend of October 10th and 11th and features 10 fitness and endurance challenges for you to take on next year, the amazing story of boxer Jonathan Cumateo, who overcame some serious health problems to turn professional, and you can also find out why simple acts of kindness can boost your mental health.